Also, um, hi. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Hello and hi. Hello and hi. We can see each other again. I love it so much. God, it's so much better. (laughs) You're also frozen in a really dumb face and I love it. Really? Wait, I'm going to try and get a picture of it. Can you do the face? Hang on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and now you're back. Will you send me that photo? I sure will. Thank you. Um... I wish I could make this photo the title of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) That is a whole other level that I wish podcasts are not quite at. Not yet. I'm ready for us to be trailblazers. Yeah. (sighs) Hi. (laughs) How are you to be here and be in this with you? I'm good. I, I'm good. Um, I have been working out a lot more since all of this started and I'm finally starting to like actually feel the effects. I'm not seeing any effects, but I feel the effects. And so like, I'm actually able to see, not see, feel that I'm getting stronger and more flexible. That's great. It feels really nice because I feel like I put in a lot of time Mm -hmm. and a lot of sweat (laughs) (laughs) and a couple of tears. Let's be honest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't think I bled. Not yet. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Keeping it real. Have you worked out on your period? I have bled. Yes. There you go. You're right. You're welcome. Blood, sweat, and tears. Yep. Um, Which... Why is that the phrase? Why are those the things that we have to give? But I don't know. Um, I've given all of them. And so it's nice to be like, oh, I can hold this plank longer. Mm-hmm. Wow. I can reach that bind. I don't know what it is, but it's, that's great. It's encouraging. I'm encouraged for you and by you. <sighs> you. I'm encouraged by you. How are you? Um. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, this week has been uh, a lot on the migraine front. Mm. Like, like a lot. Like, um, I, it, it was bad enough this week to trigger a new aura, which oh. is fun. What's the um, new one? My, I get a metallic taste in my mouth now Yikes! for like a day before it hits. Yikes. That's a very long time. So it was cool. Yeah. I like had taken a sip of water and like the water tasted really weird. And I told Evan about it and he was like, I mean, it's clean glass. I don't know why. And I was like, yeah, I don't either. And so I was like, I like tried to rinse it out with like, I ate some like oatmeal to try and change it. And it wow. still tasted you real weird. It the blandest food in the world to try Excuse and... Excuse you. How dare you? It was maple and brown sugar with added Kirkland Select maple syrup. Kirkland Select. Thank you very much. But it's like somebody um, being like, I had this weird taste in my mouth, so I ate toast to <laughs> try and wipe out the taste. First of all, I didn't eat toast because we're out of bread. Second of all, um, yeah, and so then I like tried to like drink some Diet Coke and like that just tasted real weird. And I was like, 
kind of starting to get stressed out about it, and I looked it up, and apparently that is a not common but not rare um, aura that people can get sometimes. And I was like, all right, so if I feel like garbage tomorrow, then I'll not really be stressed out about this. Uh-huh. And then, lo and behold, um, I I left work early, um, which means that I, like, turned off my computer that's in my house, which is also where I work now. Um, yeah. And so I left work early on Thursday, and then Friday had to call in because, like, I – and like today have been just basically laying around and um, it's been, it's, it's been painful enough today to where like it makes, I don't really know how to describe it, but it makes my hearing kind of go away on one side of my head. <laughs> it's great. It's all great. Um, what cool, fun, new superpowers you have. It's so great. I love it so much. It definitely doesn't make me feel like I'm constantly having a stroke. <laughs> yeah. So it's excellent. Um, I thought it was getting better this morning. I felt like I, I felt like trash, but like but like warm trash, not like hot trash. Okay. And okay. and then in the last like two hours it's gotten real bad again. Uh, so that sucks. I'm sorry. That's fine. It's it's on par for 2020. So that's true. That's a you know, very true statement that you have it's made. It's just staying on brand, which I appreciate. I don't like surprises. So I guess this is fine. <laughs> so what you're saying is you're grateful. Oh my God. I'm so grateful. Your migraine and live, laugh, love all day thankful long. Thankful <laughs> for your new journey. Yep. And experiences. Wow. Yep. All of it. Yeah. So much. Mm-hmm. So much. What are you drinking? I am drinking a hazy pale ale from good old Half Acre. It's called mm. Tome. Mm. It's got a nice little sunset. Oh, that is nice. Yeah. I like that quite a bit. It's so nice. So nice. We did a grocery run, grocery and beer run today. And, wow, it's just... Wild. It's a lot. Uh-huh. The the line to get in and then the whole, you know, one-way aisles and the marks on the floor and everything. And just, like, I'm trying to, like, make sure I'm going the right way in the right aisle. And then I see something and it's, like, just there. But I got to go around the other way to get... Man. Wow. Took a lot longer than it normally does. <laughs> yeah. Dang. But we're... I mean, we are stocked on food. Goodness. We have so much food. And it's good. I'm excited to news. cook it and try some new recipes. And it's going to be good. I hear an Evan Dodd standby. I'm drinking water mm. and Diet Coke. Sorry, I'm trying to uh, think of how I'm going to splice all this together. I think it'll just have to be. We'll figure it out. This is going to be an Evan interlude. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Um, I only ever have a Diet Coke when I go to the grocery store. It's like my little treat to myself for making it through the grocery store. So I had a Diet Coke today. Look at you. So fresh. So fresh. (laughs) Yeah. Also, welcome to Babe Town, Taylor. I can't believe that you've done this to me again. Wow. (laughs) Thank you. 
Reagan. I feel so welcomed. Good. I'm so glad. My cat is awake now, too. So I heard. (laughs) So (laughs) just the tiniest little. There might be loads of noises in and out of this episode. It's just going to be episode 34 (laughs) guest stars. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Thank you. Welcome yourself. Thank you. you. I'm not salty about it at all. (sighs) Um, I have a further question for you. Mm, Please ask. What year was your babe born? What a... I would almost... I think that you're probably going to go first again. Oh, I definitely am. No, I definitely am. I picked a super old lady. She's in the game. Um, Thank you for your shocking inquiry. Yeah. Um, My babe was born in 1862. Excuse my cat noises. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you were going first by a long shot. When was yours born? 1950. Woo. All right. Back on that hundred year. Okay. Um, boop, boop, boop. I just as a, a, um, disclaimer for this one. Yeah. I cut out so much. That's great news. Cause I cut out a lot of mine too, but there's still, there's still so much, but there was, I just like reading everything. I could not include all of it. It's chaos, but <clears throat> Anyways, um, anyway, I 18. am fairly positive you've heard of this person, but it's super duper time to talk about her because she's the best and we should all be talking about her all the time. Let's do it. Taylor. Yes. Have you heard of Ida B. Wells? Oh, my God. Yeah. Have yeah, I yeah, heard yeah. of Ida yeah, B. Yeah, yeah. Wells? No, I know. Of course. I, I thought about, like, is she too well known for Baytown? I didn't marry Todd like, Lincoln. Yeah, that's true. I was like, I don't care. This is the craziest story. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Ida Wells because can't wait, my dude. And there's so much stuff. I didn't know if like everybody everybody knew about her because there's a ton of stuff in Chicago named after her. So her yeah. name is just everywhere. And I was like, maybe it's just here. Did I know her before that? I don't remember. Anyway, okay. <clears throat> Here we go. So, Ida Bell Wells. How cute is Stop. that? Stop. Her middle name is Bell. Ida That's Bell. what is? Ida Bell Wells. Is that cute. the cutest thing? Um, she's born July 16th, 1862 in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Not a great time to be in Mississippi, but no. um, technically she was born a slave. She, the Civil War ended and the Emancipation Proclamation freed her like six months after she was born. Um, Her father, James, was the child of a white slave owner and one of his slaves that he'd raped. Her name was Peggy. Oh, jeez. So once her dad, James, was born and grew up a little bit, his father, her grandfather, took him to be a carpenter apprentice. Does this make sense? Wait. (laughs) So once her father, like, came of age or was a teenager or whatever. Yeah. His father, Ida's grandfather. Yes. Who was the slave owner. Yes. Okay. That's the part that I was like, wait. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. James's father, the slave owner. Okay. Took him to become a carpenter apprentice. 
and then hired his son out to oh, people around town. They literally called him a God. hired out slave living in town. His son. I can't. Wow. Wow. Oh, another the disclaimer. Fuck? There are so many bummers in this story. Great. It's. But she just keeps on swinging and it's so great. Okay. All so right. her, okay. her mother, Lizzie, also a slave, was born to a family of 10 and then sold from her plantation in Virginia. And so after the Civil War, she tried to find her family, but she never could. And then eventually both of her parents were enslaved to an architect. And that's where she was born. Wow. Um, so after emancipation, James, her dad, developed a successful carpentry business. The family did super well. Ida was one of their eight kids. They're just Ida. Like, I love the name Ida. That's It's such a good yeah. name. Ida Bell. Ida Bell Wells. So cute. It's just so good. Um, she's super smart. She went to a liberal arts college called Rust College. But then while she was visiting her grandmother one time in 1878, yellow fever swept through Holly Springs and ended up killing both of her parents and one of her siblings. Oh, my God. Yeah. Ugh. Um, so after the funeral, a bunch of her relatives got together and they wanted to separate all of the kids mm-hmm. and send them to various foster homes. And Ida was like, fuck no. So some records say that she dropped out of school. Some records say that she was thrown out for starting a dispute with the university president, which sounds pretty, pretty on brand, pretty much like something she would do. Um, Either way, she left Rust College and found a job as an elementary school teacher. And then her grandmother, Peggy, helped her with her younger siblings when she was at work. Wow. Yeah. So she kept the family together. So for a few years, that whole setup worked out. And then in 1883, Peggy also died of a stroke. So without the additional help, Ida couldn't do it on her own. So she packed up her youngest two sisters and moved to Memphis. I think the other siblings were old enough after a few years. They were okay on their own. I don't think she like abandoned. They're like nine. (laughs) She's like, go on, live your life. But she took her youngest two siblings. They moved to Memphis. She moves to their Aunt Fanny, which, again, the names in this oh, story. Incredible. Into it. So she got a teaching job in Memphis. and then she I feel was, like if your name is Fanny, you have to be. You have to be an aunt. You have to be an aunt. Yeah. You have to be. Even if, even if you have, like, no siblings or whatever that would make you an aunt, if your name is Fanny, you have to go by Aunt Fanny. Yeah. Yeah. Should I just start calling myself Aunt Fanny? I certainly wouldn't be mad about it, except that isn't doesn't Fanny in England mean like vagina? Maybe. <laughs> That's a distinct possibility. Because I know that everybody thinks it's real funny that we say fanny pack. <laughs> it's like a vagina pack. That is that is funny in that connotation. <laughs> that is pretty good. I'm like 93% sure that this is the case. And if not, then all the Brits who listen to this podcast chime in. Cause I know that That's there are lots of you. So many, <laughs> so <Yeah>. many, <laughs> the sect of British people that listen to this podcast, man, they are, they are many and they are vocal. Um, in the Venn diagram of our listeners and British people, it's just a circle. Okay. So just a solid circle. That's it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> All right, fine. I won't call myself Aunt Fanny. Okay, so she gets a teaching job in Memphis. But then during summer break of her job, she would continue her college education at, she went to two different universities. She went to Fisk University in Nashville and Lemoyne Owen College in Memphis. At the same time? I don't know. But that would I, be extremely impressive if it was at the same time. I would not put it past her. Oh, I'm I'm just going to choose to believe that it was at the same time. Yeah. Great. And she had to she had classes at one and then she had to drive to the next class at the other and so she's just like bouncing back and forth between Nashville and Memphis all the time. Oh, well they're in different Yeah, How they're in different cities. Is, Oh, okay, so like probably not. How far away is Nashville from Memphis though? Um far enough that going to both at once now would be difficult. Going to both at once in the 1890s would be real difficult. Near impossible. Near impossible, I would imagine. Okay. Um, okay. So scratch that. But maybe, idea, but. maybe she had a time turner. Who knows? Um. So anyway, she continues her college education. She develops super strong political views, and she was always very vocal about women's rights, and that was considered very provocative. Of course. Because, Can you know, you women, they don't need rights. No, absolutely not. When she was 24, she wrote, quote, I will not begin at this late day by doing what my soul abhors, sugaring men, weak, deceitful creatures, with flattery to retain them as escorts or to gratify a revenge. Queen, shit. I love her Queen, so queen, much. shit. Weak, deceitful creatures. Ugh. Wow. Anyway. Oh, my God. I love yeah. that you're doing Ida B. Wells. Holy shit. I love her so much. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So May 4th, 1884, Ida's on a train on the Chesapeake, Ohio Railroad. And a conductor comes by and he's like, you have to give up your seat and go to the smoking car. And the smoking car is already packed. And she's like, no, you're making me give up my seat because I'm a black female. And I'm because I'm black and I'm not going to give up my seat. So he... According to the Supreme Court at the time, it was very legal for him to do this. Ew. Yeah. Um, the Supreme Court's ruling on the Civil Rights Act of 1875 made it legal for train conductors to forcibly make people switch seats based on race. Uh, so she refuses and she's dragged off the train. So then she wrote an article about her treatment on the train and she started to gain popularity in Memphis. So then she sued the train company. And then found out that her attorney had been bought by the train company. So she fired them and got a new attorney and then won her case. Her attorney had been bought by the train company while he was her attorney. Yeah. Like he agreed to do to take her case. And then the train came to him and they were like, or we could give you all this money and you could throw the case. And he was like, that sounds like a great idea. Ew. Yeah. Oh, my God. But she won. Yeah, so she won. So December 24th, 1884, the local courts ruled that the train company had to pay her $500. Do you want to guess how much it is? Oh, I'm so bad at this. Me too. It's all. Is it like, I'm just going to, is it that like $1,200? No. Oh my God. (laughs) Shit. I'm so bad at this. Wait, wait, wait. Is it like a lot more? Yeah. Is it like... $10,000. $10,000. Closer. Uh, I, okay. What, it just tell me. It's $13,304.90. That is 
both so specific and also like so much money. It's so much money. And I did the same thing. I was like $500. It's probably like, I don't know, like 5,000 today. I don't know. Mm -hmm. No, I was very wrong. I think I just apparently really underestimate inflation. (laughs) It's a bitch. Let me tell you. I really underestimated apparently because I'm so bad at that game. Me too. Don't worry, but it's still fun and I'm going to keep doing it. It is still fun. Um, So the train company appealed the case because Supreme Court, blah, blah, blah. So it goes to the Tennessee Supreme Court. They overturned the local ruling because they said that she clearly wasn't interested in finding another comfortable seat, only in making a statement. Ew, what the fucking shit? Yeah, get your shit together, Tennessee. Oh, my God. Stop being awful. Um, but she's like, you know what? Fine, fine. She keeps teaching and she starts writing more in earnest and her writing really starts to pick up steam. She's offered an editor position for the evening star in Washington, DC, but she stays at a local newspaper called the living way weekly. And she starts writing under the pen name Lola. So as Lola, she begins to speak out about, you know, racist bullshit and Mm -hmm. attacking Jim Crow laws as one should and does. Yep. Um, and then in 1889, she became editor and co-owner of a popular black newspaper at the time called Free Speech and Headlight. So she's writing at both of these magazines or newspapers, sorry. And she starts writing about the conditions of all black schools and how they're extremely in Memphis and how they're extremely underfunded and they need more attention. And the school was pissed, so they fired her for saying it. Because how dare she want a future that's better and also for students. She's advocating for the school yeah. to get more money. Yeah. Oh, God. So that's cool. Um, but then she's done teaching. She just starts writing full time and she becomes a journalist. And she's starting to become fairly successful in Memphis. And she's seen as a respectable middle class woman. So. Now we're have to like step aside and tell a separate story for a second for context. Great. So 1889, there's a man named Thomas Moss who opened a grocery store in a Southern Memphis neighborhood called the curve. Ida knew the Moss family really well. She was the godmother of their oldest child. So they're super close, but she's not really in this part. Mm -hmm. So Moss opens this grocery store. He calls it people's grocery And it starts to do super well. And it happens to be across the street from a white-owned grocery store that is now competing with. The white-owned grocery store is owned by a dude named Barrett. So March 2nd, 1892, in between the two grocery stores out in the street, a young black boy and a young white boy are playing with marbles. And they start to – they get in some argument, as children do. Because they're kids. Because they're kids. And they start to kind of fight. And once it becomes clear that the little black boy is winning, the white boy's father steps in and just starts thrashing the back, the black boy. So two employees of people's grocery see that this is happening and they rush out and like pull the dude off of this child, child, actual child that he is literally beating the shit out of. So neighborhood people see that they pulled him off. And everybody starts taking sides. Everybody starts gathering and it turns into a mob situation. Nobody's hurt other than the little boy that was beaten, but it disperses. So the next day, Barrett, the dude who owns the white owned grocery store, 
he shows up at people's grocery with the cops. And one of the employees that broke up the fight is there, but he says that the other guy who was there the day before, he's like, oh, he he's not here today. So Barrett is pissed and claims that all blacks are thieves and then hits that employee on the head with his pistol. That employee's name is McDowell. So he hits McDowell on the head with his pistol. McDowell wrestles the gun away from him, fires at Barrett. He misses. He's arrested. McDowell is, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's later released. He's fine. Two days after that, a group of white men show up outside people's grocery with a cop. And they are fired on from within the store. Two men are wounded, including the cop. So then here is the scariest sentence in the fucking world. Hundreds of whites were deputized almost immediately to put down what was perceived as an armed rebellion by black men in Memphis. How fucked up is that? I. Wow. Yeah. 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 So Moss and McDowell and then the other employee um, who pulled the dad off, his name's Stuart. All three of those guys are arrested and taken to jail to await trial. Then while they're in jail in the middle of the night, 75 fucking white dudes in masks show up, take them out to the train tracks and murder them. And nothing happened to any of those white men. Um, So Ida is pissed obviously Mm -hmm. and this is what turned her from a journalist into an investigative journalist and she starts like digging deep into lynchings all over tennessee and mississippi later all over the south but at the beginning just those two states and she found out that one dude hired a lynch mob to kill a young black man his daughter was dating so that her reputation wouldn't be tarnished so they killed a dude what the fucking shit there's There were so many stories that I'm not going to tell because they were so graphic. But I. She later wrote, quote, there is therefore only one thing left to do. Save our money and leave a town which will neither protect our lives and property nor give us a fair trial in the courts. But takes us out and murders us in cold blood when accused by white persons. Um. Man, I can't even imagine how terrifying that would be. No. God. But she starts calling attention to what she called that old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women. She was Mm -hmm. like, if anything, in this racial power structure, it's the white men that are raping the black women. Mm -hmm. And if Southern men would look into what's actually happening. Quote, a conclusion might be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. That's and the like, most polite fuck you I've ever heard in my life. But it's like, it's that like, I don't know. They do it a lot in like British shows where they're all like, you know, being super polite, but it's just backhand after backhand. Yeah. Oh, oh, I love it. It's so good. <sighs> wow. So as she starts saying all of this, she starts receiving threats because, of course, um, her newspaper headquarters were burned to the ground and they destroyed all of her equipment. Thankfully, she was in New York when that happened, but they she was warned that if she ever came back to Memphis, she'd be killed. So she never went back. So she keeps doing her research. She keeps digging deep into all of this stuff. And October of 1892, she published her research, her research 
And it was a pamphlet called Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases, where she would point out the trend of white men claiming that their female relatives or whoever had been raped by a black man as excuse to kill that man. Because they were like, oh, well, these women, you know, they shouldn't have to see them in court. They shouldn't have to. So they were like dressing it up as chivalry. But they were right. using it as an excuse to kill people. So she starts pointing out the correspondence between lynchings and black economic progress. And so she was saying that white men were terrified of black progress and having to compete with talented, smart, progressive black people. So they turned to lynchings and tried to make new ways, tried to come up with new ways of making black people seem like second class citizens. So they start to disenfranchise the poor by instituting laws, including poll taxes, literacy tests, whatever they could do to cheat and get themselves ahead. And then if that didn't work, they would lynch them. She wow. keeps digging deeper. She later published another piece that was a 100-page pamphlet called Red Record. In this, she called out how, like, during slavery, there was a lot of violence against black people. Obviously, it was slavery. But it was less than after civil war because during that time white people saw black men as economic labor values ew ew wow ew but then after it ended violence against black people exploded she said quote 10,000 negroes have been killed in cold blood through lynching without the formality of judicial trial and legal execution and then she gave 14 pages just of statistics related to lynching cases committed from 1892 to 1895. And in most of those 14 cases, pages, more than three years in three years, 14 pages, just of statistics. And in most of those, they had all of the proof. They would like, they, everyone knew exactly who did it, but they weren't indicted by the Southern courts. And she she felt like she was just coming up against this wall. Like her campaign against lynching would only go so far in the South. So she goes to Britain because they're yes. still one of the main cotton, um, not producers. The South is the producer. The other end is the consumer. Like, there it That's, is. There it is. Found it. Um, so she can like expose what's going on to the British and that can, and hurt the industry maybe that will actually wake them up and they'll have it'll give her leverage right and as she's touring britain she toured twice and as she's touring everybody is like super outraged by what they're hearing and they're you know it's it's going well it's working and on one of her tours a chicago newspaper which was the only main white newspaper calling for the end of lynching in the country it was the only ah. one yeah, God. <laughs> uh, but they paid for her to write for them while she was abroad, which made her the first African-American woman to be a paid correspondent for a mainstream white newspaper. That's amazing. Super cool. Um, So it's going well. Everything's great. But then she gets back and the New York Times published some really horrible things about her. And most newspapers were attacking her personally and calling her slanderous and a lot of horrible other things because they were like, we have to make her, we have to discredit her. Right. So yeah. 1893, she forms the women's era club, which was the first civic club for African-American women. Now it is called the Ida B. Wells club. Amazing. And then 
a um, the president of the Missouri Press Association, this dude named Jax, claimed that all black women were, quote, prostitutes and natural liars and thieves who were, quote, wholly devoid of morality. That is the most racist shit I've ever He's heard in my racist. life. Bullshit. So after he says that, she goes on to form the National Association of Colored Women. And it's like, wow, shove it. Jax. I didn't know that. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Seriously, every time someone attacks her, she's like, I'm going to turn this into something dope. Excuse me. Wow. I love her. It's that thing that we talk about all the time of resilience. I'm like, how do you how? get beat down? Yeah. How do yeah. you take something horrible and turn it into advocacy? Yeah. I'm so impressed by people that can do that because I'm just lazy and honestly it's probably privilege where i'm just like wallowing in the misery of things mm-hmm. <sighs> okay here we go anyway that wasn't a mm-hmm because i think that that's what you're doing that wasn't mm-hmm because like yeah i feel that yeah i mean i get it um so a lot of people consider her to be a founding member of the naacp because she was present at the founding, but she isn't listed as an official founding member. And so it's just kind of like an opinion. Oh, yeah. Basically. And she was with them for a while. But then at the beginning, she left early on and called them out for not being active enough. Um, and so a lot of people later on use that as like, well, she doesn't even think the NAACP is active enough. It's like, well, at the time, yeah, but now they are. Calm down. Yeah. Context. You know? Um. So then she starts working with the National Equal Rights League. Um, she twice called upon the presidents at the time, first McKinley and then Wilson, to end racial discrimination. She founded the first African-American kindergarten in her community. She continued to fight for women's suffrage. Many times when she was abroad, she would um, confront white women in the suffrage movement who were ignoring lynching. And so she Amazing. would publicly confront them and be like, hey, you th- like you're fighting fuck? for equality. Guess what's super not equal. Right. Yeah. Um, she married another journalist and activist in Chicago, and they had four kids together. And he had two from another marriage. So they have six kids. But she says, fuck you to gender norms. And she kept working the whole time. Yes. And they, because they were both journalists and activists, their careers were like intertwined, which was super rare at the time. And... So a lot of people, so she's like trying to balance being a mother of six kids in the early 1900s and being a working woman and having being a career. Yeah. And some people just called her distracted. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but obviously, she's a strong advocate for women in the workplace, equal rights. Um, she attacked the world's fair Columbia exposition. She had a failed Senate race. Like there's so much that I had to cut out because it's, there's just so much. Yeah. So at one point in, I think it was 1900, the Chicago Tribune published an article that was like, maybe Chicago should legally segregate schools. Like maybe that would be a cool thing. And she was like, excuse me. Um, (laughs) I've seen it and it doesn't work. And here's exactly why. And she yeah. shut it the fuck down immediately. And so it never actually became official in Chicago. Wow. Partially thanks to her. So she started writing her autobiography crusade for justice, 
but unfortunately never finished it. And so it was edited by her daughter, Alfreda, and posthumously published in 1970 called Crusade for Justice, the Autobiography of Ida B. Wells. Um, she died on March 25th, 1931 of kidney failure. She was 68 years old. Wow. And there are, there's no way that I can include them all, but like National Women's Hall of Fame, Chicago Women's Hall of Fame, there's a street downtown, there are housing developments. She was a stamp. Awards are named after her foundations. Um, the house that she grew up in that the slave owner architect owned. Yeah. Now is the Ida B. Wells Museum. Wow. Which is so cool. Um, multiple plays have been written about her, including one that Chadwick Boseman was in when he was in college, which I think is super cool. And this very week, she was honored with the posthumous Pulitzer Prize. The same fucking day that Trump called female journalists angry and unladylike. And I love to think that it was the Pulitzer Foundation being like, actually, you know what? Actually, go fuck yourself. Fuck yourself. Wow. Yeah. I missed that particular Trump quote. That is the story of Ida, Ida Bell Wells. Wow. Sweet Ida Bell Wells. And every photo of her, she looks like she's like 15. She looks super young and everything. It's just wow. like, I just want to protect you, you precious flower. Um, to source my shit, Wikipedia, biography.com. There's an article on womenshistory.com by Alicia R. Norwood. Um, there's a HuffPost article that was great. But the one that like caught my attention and made me choose her today is called Ida B. Wells won the Pulitzer. Here's why that matters. It's a Washington Post article by Sarah L. Silkey. And my favorite quote from it is, African-Americans had no legal protections and their lives held no value where lynching and race prejudice flourished. And it's, you would think that like 150 years later, we would be somewhere. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You would think. You would think. And that Man. is so Wells. Recent Pulitzer winner and dope, dope badass. I'm very um, into that. There are, in almost every article that you read about her, there is going to be some graphic stuff. Yeah. As a heads up. Um, there in that Washington Post article, there was there were two times I was reading it and Trevor was in the kitchen making coffee and he was like, are you going to tell Taylor about the times that you audibly gasped? <laughs> I was like, sure, because literally at least two times reading this article, I went, oh, no, like <laughs> just not not OK. None of it is OK. Yeah. <sighs> Man. Yeah. I think next week I'm going to pick a really old lady so that I snag it out from under you. But I keep getting sucked in by these cool modern ladies. So it's okay. The one that I was going to do before I read that article and changed my mind is still alive. And so I was like, I'll get her with this. Oh, great. Okay. (laughs) I changed my mind. I was like 1865. (laughs) Throwing it back. Um, Okay. Well, Reagan. Yes. Have you ever heard of Zahar Hadid? No, I Great. have not. Okay. 
Um, I'm probably going to continuously fuck up her name. Um, it's Z-A-H-A. And you're supposed to say the R at the end of it, I guess. But like barely? But barely. Yeah, like just a little a little hint of an R. Um, okay, so Zahar. She was born on Halloween, 1950, Ooh. in Ooh. Baghdad. Spooky. The spooky birthday. Um, so her father was a politician who sent her to a convent school despite being Muslim. Hmm. That's did never find why or anything. The brought in her mind, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. Very possible. Um, so eventually she goes to an English boarding school um, and she earns a degree in math from the American <laughs> University of Beirut. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a sneeze? <laughs> It was a sneeze. You're going to have to do so much editing. I'm sorry. Bless you. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> oh, that was so good. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> so eventually she goes to an English boarding school. Um, she earns a degree in math from the American University of Beirut. And that's like literally all that I could find out about her early life. So. Okay. Moving on. Um, so in 1972, she goes to study at the Architectural Association School in London. Um, from here on out, we're going to call it the AA because it pops up a lot. Um, so when I say the AA, it's not Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the Got Architectural it. Association in London. Um, she graduated in 1977. So she's 27 at this point. Okay. Um so the Guardian describes the AA as, quote, a licensed opposition in which dissidents and dreamers created an architecture mainly on paper that had nothing to do with the bleak architectural climate of the time. So Oof. pause. Let's talk about architecture history in Britain for a second. Let's do it. So apparently there's like a shitload of it that I had no idea about. Um, so this is a really, really, really broad scope view of are these all... are these where my pictures come in yep <gasps> yeah but not yet don't look at oh, them yet okay. that's fine um so so prince charles the queen's husband no son <laughs> shit husband right husband i think yeah he's the prince of wales <laughs> Hang on. I'm gonna our look British, the British sect of our listeners is going to oh be so Oh my god, all of our British listeners are going to be so mad. They're going to be so mad at us. Prince Charles. That's super true. Evan just said, by definition, the Queen's husband couldn't be the prince. He would be the king. <laughs> <laughs> I heard him whisper something and I was like, this ought to be good. <laughs> Relation to Queen. Hang on. I have to know. Um, yeah, shit, you're right. <laughs> so, Prince Charles is the Queen's son. You bet. It's Harry and the bald one's dad. <laughs> William, that's the other one. Okay. Harry and the bald one. It's the hot one and the bald one. <laughs> It's their dad. I'm sure you like Benny and the Jets, but like Harry <laughs> and the bald one. Oh, that's so, so good. So Prince Charles is 
he apparently has very strong architectural views, which is a weird thing to have very strong views on. Um, he has a suit. He's like super traditionalist when it comes to architecture. And apparently a whole lot of it stems from when Britain swung to the right after the war. Um, and so it kind of was like in when with the quote unquote welfare consensus was starting to be rolled back. So it was like when they wanted just traditional everything all over the place. And Charles is kind of like the, the head of that. Um, That's so, shocking that a member of the monarchy would like something traditionalist. So weird. So um, he's like calling for all of this modern architecture to be removed or rolled back to traditionalist architecture. And there was there's a really deep dive article about it um, that talks about part of the reason that post-war architecture in Britain had changed so much is because after the war, there were suddenly these huge technological advances in like steel and like what you could build a building out of. And it wasn't just wood and brick and like you could make these big grand designs and have them look a little more like art than just a building so since charles is the oh shit i got it right in here i just forgot about it since charles is the son of the queen (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm such a dumb dick (laughs) um so obviously he's super powerful um so in 1982 is kind of when all of our part of this story kicks in. So he gives a speech at the Royal Institute for British Architects. He gives a speech for their 150th anniversary dinner. And instead of being like, way to go, you guys, he just like shat all over their whole profession and was like, (laughs) yeah, like, I don't really think that you guys are necessary. Like, I don't understand why we have to hire like artists to build these buildings. They should just be built and everything should look the way that it's looked for hundreds of years. Um, So that's kind of when it all started. Um, So apparently in that speech, there was a proposed extension of the National Gallery in London that Charles, in his speech at the fucking architect's dinner, called, quote, a monstrous carbuncle on the face of a much-loved and elegant friend. So then, of course, because he called it that, the project was scrapped, and the architecture firm that was heading the project, like, died immediately i wonder Um, if like people asked him to speak and they were like we would love for you to like (laughs) say something inspiring to the architects of tomorrow or whatever and he's like oh oh for sure oh do i I have have a speech for you so many things to say it's super complimentary it's so nice all good things all good things i am just gonna like i am gonna fill them with love and hope and joy for the future and then instead he's like oh i'm gonna rip these fuckers to pieces (laughs) I just love that, like, that, like, out of all of the people that Charles could have beef with, it's architects. Yeah. Very it weird. seems like a really lame, like, Iron Man move. Right? So, so yeah, that's kind of the other thing is that, um, so this Deep Dive article described it as saying, quote, Charles has thrown around his royal privilege with abandon. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is, like, the best summation of the yeah. whole thing. Like, yeah, he doesn't have to do any of this. He just says shit. And then because he's a royal, people take it and run with it because they kind of have to because he's a fucking royal. Yes, so, like. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. So. Waving it around with abandon. Jump back to our lady, Zahar. She is in this climate 
in London in the 1980s, right? So she's there in the middle of all of this. Um, So this is when she is starting to try to break onto the architecture scene. So as you can imagine, probably not a stellar time to be trying to be an architect um, in England. So um, pretty much every innovative project that had any chance of, of making it into an actual building was scrapped for not being traditional enough. Uh. So people are like, so, okay. So to chat a little bit more about the AA, the Architects Association, um, it's, one of, got it. it's one of the major hubs still for the, for progressive architecture, but especially in the seventies, it was like this big, like we're going to make buildings art, which is pretty cool. Um, so lots and lots of famous and influential architects came out of this place and then later taught at that place. So all of her professors were like these well-known influential architects. So she ended up with like a lot of mentors out of this, which was great. Um, two of her professors that she referenced as being very influential to her um, were pretty anti-building which is such a strange stance for an architect to have but i don't wait i don't think i understand that how is that a thing like what does that mean so they were they were like the architecture of your mind no like they were very into um design and like theoretical buildings but not they weren't so much a fan of actually getting your designs built they viewed it as selling out which well, that seems like the way that you would like just be an architect rather than an artist. But that sounds to me like, did you ever, did you watch Schitt's Creek? No, not yet. Ah, there's a character in it that, ah, never mind. It's not going to make any sense. That idea to me seems like someone who their parents have paid for them to go to all of the best like art and philosophy schools. Yeah. But they're like actual art architects. Like like, they have buildings that are built, but they regret them because they sold out. (laughs) So I think part of it, I think part of it was, was the whole like, Charles is just going to shoot down anything anyway. So you might as well just kind of be a theoretical architect, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but so you can make a strong living. I tell you what, one of them, one of those two professors um, was a guy named Leon Creer and he went on to become an advisor for Prince Charles. So like it kind of tells you like his architectural style. And then the other one was described as taking the word brutal as a compliment (laughs) so they both seem like real chill dudes so Um, relaxed so she thought the whole anti-building thing was stupid as fuck because they're architects um and so this article from the guardian quote hadid matched their reluctance to compromise but was always determined to build good i love yeah she was just stubborn as fuck and but like in the other direction but also she was like we should build buildings because that's what we do because we build buildings that's literally our job so um so in 1979 when she is 29 she establishes her own firm um which is still a thing dude Um, 
1983, she enters into a competition to design the Peak, which was a leisure center in Hong Kong. And um, so it sounds like, I, I mean, I don't really know like how architects get shit done, <laughs> but it sure sounds like it's a project and then lots of architects put in their design and then that gets picked because multiple times throughout all of this, she like entered competitions and was selected as being the person to design a thing. So I think that's just kind of how architects like build buildings. I think especially for, um, like I've heard of it being done for memorials yeah, and stuff where yeah. like whoever wants it built just kind of puts out, puts it out there and then to the architecture world and is like, okay, whoever comes up with the best design, will make it, you know? Yeah. So I don't know if that's true, but that's at least true true for our podcast. Do so. you mean they're auditioning to build buildings? Basically, yeah. <gasps> Amazing. I get it. I get it. Um, so she enters this competition. She wins the competition. Um, so she <laughs> made this design that was called a, quote, horizontal skyscraper. Um, and it was, like, apparently, like, kind of spilling down this hill. And it was, like a very fluid thing. And so she, her style um, eventually gets called deconstructivists. Um, and so she was part of a group that kind of like focused on this kind of fragmentation. And um, it was quote, characterized by a sense of fragmentation, instability and movement. So she's like super angular, all of her, or her at least her early designs are very geometric and very angular. Um, but like and, also fluid. Yeah. Which is cool. <laughs> yeah. And so her, that style um, was kind of coined and made popular by a 1988 exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And so that's where that like title of deconstructivists comes from. Um, and so she, it was like her and like a couple other architects that were kind of in that grouping. Um, unfortunately, the peak was actually never built. Um, just like lots of her other earlier projects because she was so, so like avant-garde with it and mm -hmm. so out there that nobody was actually building her shit. Um, so she started to get known as a paper architect, which is very sad and also like the most descriptive term that I could think of because like you know exactly what that means. Yeah. Like her shit is only good on paper, not only good, but like, you know. Yeah. Um, so the like worst it's the only thing way you're going to see it. Sorry. Right. So the worst thing about it all, though, is that everyone knew that she was amazing and really good because her all of her renderings for these buildings ended up being in art museums around the world. Dude. They were so beautifully rendered that they were put into art museums. I'm so excited to look at my photos. Oh, my God. So um, so you can pull up. Those photos, because we're about to talk about one of them. Hang on, I'm going to pull it up with you so that I know which one to tell you about. Um, okay, so that first one, that kind of purpley one. Yeah. Okay, so that is the Vitra Fire Station in Weil am Rhein, Germany. Um, she built that in 1989. And also, though, if you look at the whole outline of it, it kind of looks like a transformer. Like, yeah. it kind of looks like Optimus Prime. Yeah. And so I think it's a dope fire station. I do too. That is her like early work and her early style where it's super 
angular and geomatic. Um, Huge fan. Big fan. So slowly, so she ends up having multiple projects over the next like five or six years. Um, she has a bunch in Germany, a bunch in London. Um, slowly her style starts to edge away from these like angular designs and more towards like fluid motion. So she ends up being known as the queen of curves because she's so into like getting everything to just flow. But that's my favorite nickname of all Isn't time. that good? I know. The queen I of know. curves. I know it's so good. That is the most badass. Oh my god. Yep. Love that. So um that her her moving into more like fluid styles corresponds with new technologies in both steel and computer designing programs. So now she can actually design things that are really fluid and actually figure out how to build them. So um in the early 2000s is kind of when she starts being recognized as like globally as a, a real architect, real un, unquotes. Um, so she designs the Lois and Richard Rosenthal Center for Contemporary Art in Cincinnati. So this makes her the, it, it makes it the first American museum designed by a woman. In 2003. Holy shit. It opened in 2003. What the Can fuck? Can I scroll? Is that next? Yep, that's the next one. Dude. There's a building in Chicago that I'm curious if she built it or designed it. I didn't see anything from her from Chicago, but it's very possible. It's right by one of the major bus stops that I will take when I'm back on my normal schedule. So I'll take a picture of it next time I'm there and I'll send it to you. Great. So um, so that's the outside. Is that super geometric? Right. And we'll put all of these photos online. So that oh, yeah, everybody I'm saving them all as we go. Them. Great. Um, so then if you go to the next one, that's the inside of it. <gasps> So she, so it's very fluid inside, very geometric outside. Um, she talked about this design as being, it, she wanted it to be like, like the red carpet unfurling as you come in. So that's why it's all yes. so good. Amazing. So good. Oh, I'm such a fan of this lady. Um, so in 2004, she was the first woman to be awarded the Pritzker Prize. Um, it's referred to as the architecture as architecture's Nobel Prize. Um, it's the profession's highest honor. She's the first woman to ever get it in 2004. Um, she ended up winning two consecutive Sterling Prizes in 2010 and 2011, which is a British award for excellence in architecture. 2012, she's made a dame. So technically, her name is Dame Zahar Hadid which is pretty cool. Amazing. Um, in 2014, um, she built a center called the Haydar Aliyev Cultural Center in Azerbaijan. And that is also in your list of photos. Whoa. Yep, that's the next one. Yeah. So that building um, won the Museum Design of the Year Award in 2014. Well, Yeah. Yeah, like, how could it not? It's so good. Dude, that's so good. So, also in 2014, there's some controversy, which it sure sounds like was pretty much made up. Um, so, Martin Filler was a writer for the New York Review of Books. And in 2014, he suggested that there had been many deaths on the site of one of her projects that was happening, that was being built in Qatar. 
So, mm. um, she was asked about it repeatedly, um, and wouldn't really talk about it. And then at one point, at one point, finally was like, okay, but like, that's not like, I'm just the architect. <laughs> like, I am not the person responsible for making sure that it's safe working conditions. That's not my job. And so then when she said that, everyone was like, oh, she's really callous. She's a diva. Like, she doesn't really care about workers. And it's like, okay, she could have worded it better. But then come to find out that Martin Filler and the New York Review of Books had to retract all of that because it came out that the thousand deaths they were talking about was on a project that hadn't even started. So very likely she was being grilled about this. And then there was finally an interview where she was like, I don't fucking know. It's not my job to know this. Like I designed the building and that's it. So it sounds like it was all very made up. She eventually filed a defamation lawsuit and she won. She settled out of court um, for an undisclosed amount, but she did donate that amount that she got from the settlement to a charity protecting labor rights. That's awesome. So, yeah. Um, she then went on to teach architecture at the Architects Association, Harvard, Yale, and the University of Chicago. So, like, maybe some Chicago stuff because she was teaching I think, there. I think this building might be. And um, our governor is Pritzker. And he's, wow. like, he's like old Chicago money. Okay, so she goes on to teach architecture. Um and so in 2016, she becomes the first woman to win the Reba Gold Award or Gold Medal. Sorry, that's the Royal Institute of British Architects Gold Medal. Right. She's the first woman to win it in 2016. Ugh. So part of that is that um, she was a trailblazer for female architects through and through. Like I found a great deep dive article from the New York times, just talking about her influence on female architects and interviewing lots of people who had taken her classes and being like, yup, like she's the best. And like, everybody should be architects because she was, and she's amazing. So, um, in 2016, while being treated for bronchitis, Zahar had uh, a sudden heart attack and died. She was 65 so young um so that new york times article like i wish that i could just read the whole thing here because it's amazing i super recommend that you look it up and read it because it is just i like i can't overstate enough how much female architects are like yeah it's like we're architects because of her like there's one lady that we're because that we're architects because of and it is her um She was quoted as saying, quote, I used to not like being called a woman architect. I'm an architect, not just a woman architect. The guys used to tap me on the head and say, you're okay for a girl. But I see an incredible amount of need from other women for reassurance that it can be done. So I don't mind anymore. Wow. Oh, my God. So um, my favorite quote, just to kind of round this out um, from that deep dive New York Times article about her influence Um, is from Amal Andreos, who's the dean of Columbia's architecture school. Quote, she is a woman architect who never wanted to be called a woman architect, 
She was just being an architect and one of the best ones. But clearly she broke new ground by being a woman, by not being Western, by being educated all over the world. There's so much that she enabled. Wow. And that is the story of Zahar Hadid. Wow, that's Architect really cool. extraordinaire. So then the rest of these photos that are in there. Yeah. Um, so she built, let's see, the next two is the outside and then the inside, respectively, of the Gangzhou Opera House in China. Dude. Right? Look at the inside of that. Those do not look like they could possibly be the same building. I know. There's no way that that is the outside and that is the ins- that There's no way. It's so amazing. Dude. I think that that's the only other one that I included in there, but there's... Yeah, lots more. Wow. There's lots real like just scroll through her buildings because they're incredible. And there's so much of this that I left out. Like there's I'm so sure, yeah. much more about her life that I left out. Um, but yeah, I'm big, huge fan of her. Dude. Big, huge fan. And she's got like so many amazing quotes. Like she's quoted at one point of saying, if I were a man, would I ever be called a diva? And like, yep, probably yeah. not. Probably not. You'd probably never be called a diva for losing your cool on an interview. Yeah. Nope. Oh. She's great. And she's like she's like this incredible like that's the best thing is that not only is she an architect, so she's brilliant, because like math and so and like so much math. Yeah. Um but she's also this like amazing artist. Like she has her art in museums and like it was, it was um, lots and lots of articles talked about what like a sense of fashion she had. So like all of these photos of her, she's just like decked out looking like she's on that. her way to the Met. Like it's just, Oh, she's so I cool. Love that. She's so cool. Wow. So good job, yeah. dude. Cool babe. Oh, I'm such a fan. (laughs) Such a fan. But that's why I was like, this one kind of requires photos. Like, yeah, I'm not just gonna talk about what these look like. And then this building, it's imagine like a a domish top, but not totally. Imagine like a building, but like it looks like Like a cool building, like an igloo, but also a blanket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great description, actually, of that one in Azerbaijan. Would you source your shit for me? Oh my god, yes. I 100% forgot. It's like I feel like I'm not quite done with this, but <laughs> that's why. Okay, so um, Britannica.com, obviously. Um, the Guardian ran an obituary for her in 2016, so it was just Dame Zah- Zah- Zahar Hadid. I don't know why the Z. It's the Z that's so hard this. for my brain to wrap around. Um, it was an article written by Dayan Sujik. Um, there is an Architectural Digest article written by Hannah Martin and Nick Moffey, 13 Striking Buildings by Zahar Hadid. Um, the Pritzker Prize website had a whole thing about her, obviously. Um, there's a Guardian article that's called, quote, Prince Charles's 10 Principles for Architecture and 10 Much Better Ones, <laughs> <laughs> which is written by Douglas Murphy. And that one was Thank a great you. time, too, because he, like lists out Prince Charles like said like these are the, my 10 things that I look for and then he lists out 10 from like an actual architect <laughs> amazing Cute. so good 
Um, and then Female Architects on the Significance of Zahar Hadid, written by Randy Kennedy and Robin Pogrebin from the New York Times. Man. Yeah. So cool. And that last one I'll probably send to you because it's yeah, a great Yeah, I would time. like to read it. It's a great time. Um, yeah, so that's my shit, and that's my lady. I love it. Very, very good job. Thanks. Yeah, dude. Wow. Who's your babe? My babe this week um, is such a cool babe. My God, she's so cool. I feel like she's too cool for me to actually be friends with her. Um, so her name is Maureen. She is oh, cool a... cool name, too. I know. Maureen Yasko. Just like... Oh. Mm, fucking... Um, but she's a stage combat, like fight choreographer, intimacy director, and yoga teacher here in Chicago. Amazing. And she's, she's just the coolest. Um, but I thankfully got to work with her on a stage reading, like right before all of this happened and we became Facebook friends and I'm so glad that we did because she streams live yoga classes on Facebook live like five times a week. Wow. Um, and there's one every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. And it's 75 minutes. And it's like, it it's so good. It's so good. It like, it challenges me and pushes me just enough. Like it's difficult, but it's soothing. And, and so last week, all of us, I think, were kind of in like a really exhausted emotional state. Yeah. Um, and I've never really gotten emotional during yoga before, but I super duper did. And it just like, even though we were on Facebook live, it felt like we were all being very vulnerable together. Yeah. And it was really uplifting and wonderful. And then this morning's was when I noticed that like, oh, I am stronger. Mm -hmm. Oh, I am more flexible. I can do this. I'm, I'm good at this. Like, I, I know what to do. My body is doing it because I've been doing it every day for two and a half months or whatever it is. And so it was like, it was really encouraging in that way. But she's also just like a really, really wonderful guide. Yeah. And I'm so incredibly thankful that she is doing this. And it's like, she'll do it. And at the end, she's like, you know what? These are pay what you can. If you can't, no worries. Thank you for practicing with us. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Like, if you can, here's my Venmo, whatever helps. But, like, seriously, it's the least pressure. She's just a wonderful human. And I have so much respect and kind of awe of people who, during all of this bullshit, are repeatedly and regularly giving of themselves just whoever wants it, needs it, can use yep. it. Like, take what you can. Just, I mean, yeah. I think it's very cool, all of the people that immediately jumped into teaching mode. Yeah. And a lot of them were teachers before in different ways. But, like, take these online classes. Here, take this knowledge that I have. I hope this helps you. I hope this brings you some sort of peace in all of this. I just think that's so selfless and yeah, very, very cool. And this morning was so nice because I was like, I woke up and I had some tea. I went on a walk and I was researching my babe and I was like doing all my thing. And then I had yoga and it was incredible and wonderful. And it was just like the best way to start my day. It was so good. That's great. 
Yeah, it was a good day. She's a cool that. babe. I mean, I think you're too cool for me to be friends <laughs> with you. But it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Who's your babe? <laughs> um, so I think that my babe kind of has to be John Oliver of last week tonight. I I love his show so much and yeah. it's so reassuring and it's just so nice. So normally, you know, normal John Olivers are a deep dive into random topics that mm-hmm. I would never think twice about. Um, but you learn. But then you learn so much and it's often shit that like, I didn't really want to know, but <laughs> now I know and now I'm mad about it. But it's always it's always things that I think are really important things to talk about. Um, they're just usually things that I didn't know that I could be angry about and then I am. Yep. So that's the kind of frustrating part of watching his show. But it's all they're so well researched and they're so funny and also so informative. And so he's been doing his episodes from home, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, do you guys watch him like every week? No. We watch him like every Sunday, so I don't we, know if it's we, like a show that people... Not like a, a regular scheduled thing, but we do go back and watch. And watch them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we watch them pretty much when they come out. Um, and so the first episode that he had of his COVID show, because... Um, somebody on the floor of their building that they that they film in normally in New York had it, and so they all had to evacuate their building, and so it's just that white canvas, mm-hmm. and I just cried the whole time because it was so bizarre and so like jarring. And now it's something that I want every single week because it's so well researched and it's always now coronavirus themed. Um, which is less than great, but uh, necessary. Yeah. And they're and they're always on facets of it. It's not just you know, these are the people that have died. It's like, hey, here are parts of this that we should be looking to fix because this will keep so many more people from dying. Mm-hmm. And so like this last week was about the different kinds of tests and like antibody tests versus diagnostic tests and anyway it was just very informative and it's an added kind of I mean it's not a bonus because I don't want it for anybody but it's it's great that every episode he's like I can't tell if this is my regular depression or if this is just coronavirus themed depression like I can't tell what brand of anxiety this is and it's so great to have a late night host who is who is so dedicated to making sure that people are being informed rather than just entertained and isn't trying to pretend like everything is fine and normal. Like it's my cathartic, like angry time on Sundays. And that, that first episode that you're talking about, I really appreciated that he called attention to how weird it was. Yeah. Oh yeah. And was like, this is not normal. This is weird. It feels weird for me. I'm sure it feels weird for you. Like, I, I appreciated that he, like, named what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's my angry British babe. Perfect. 
Our British listeners are going to be so excited. Oh my God. This is the week for them. (laughs) If we had spirit week, this would be Brit week. There have been ups. There have been downs. One thing has remained the same. Prince Charles is the queen's son. (laughs) Son. Harry and the bald one. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Yeah. I'll leave all that in there so everyone can know my shame. And think it's real punk rock how little I care about the British monarchy. Did you listen to this week's My Favorite Murder? Is that why you're talking about punk rock? No. I really should start reading show notes before I listen to podcasts, but I sure don't. You just go in blind? Yeah, all the time. That's wild to me. (laughs) That is so wild to me. I I don't understand that at all. I never, ever read show notes unless I'm looking for a specific episode. I just wow. click play. That's Let's the thing this. that drives me crazy about lore is that his show notes are super vague. They're all just like, what is it like when people turn against each other? And then it's like, like Paris in the 1400s. <laughs> like, ah. like, no, I want just, just tell me what the episode is about. <laughs> <laughs> but what a time when people turned against <laughs> each other. Am I right? Wow. Man, so specific. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, dude, we're less than 30 seconds away from two hours. Hooray. Um, I'm going to go heat up some split pea soup. You do it. Eat it with these gas station saltines. Because <laughs> I have total control mm-hmm. over my life. <laughs> I'm excited for you. Thank you. I'm pretty excited for myself. I'm going to also find something to snack on. It's great. It's a great idea. Um, I love you. Love oh. you. Also My love is this. rumbling. Oh, yeah, I love this, too. <laughs> oh, right. And also, you have exam. <laughs> Sorry, I was talking about my loud stomach noises. No this has been a good time, and yeah, I will talk to you soon. Okay. That sounds your great. head is better. Thanks, Come me too. Forward. Love you. I love you. Have a great week. You, you too. Bye. All right. Bye.